Hey y'all, happy Black History Month. We already know that it's always Black History Month around here. Today we're going to talk about something near and dear to my heart. Sanford and Son. And also good times and a little bit about the Jeffersons. Sanford and Son just happens to be the one that I have all six seasons on DVD. Quick note, by the way. This episode will likely make sense whether or not you're an expert on these shows, but they are all worth watching if you have time just to get a little context. I'll admit, the morning that I recorded this episode, I watched an episode of Maud to get some context because Good Times is a spinoff of Maud. Anyway, we're talking about these three shows because they were all made by the same production company called Tandem Productions in the 1970s. In some ways, this episode reminds me of the We the Black People episode about black vaudeville performers dealing with the complexity of representing black life to mixed audiences. But with 1970s television, while black artists acted and sometimes got writing and production credit, they were restricted by white executives and white TV networks. We're going to talk about how Sanford and Son, Good Times, and The Jeffersons blazed trails for future black television, both on screen and in struggles behind the scenes. My guest today is Dr. Adrian Sebro of the University of Texas at Austin, author of Scratching and Surviving, Hustle Economics and the Black Sitcoms of Tandem Productions. Now, before we dive deep into these iconic shows, we're going to establish some context. These three shows become extra important when you look at the social and TV landscape that Tandem Productions came into. So let's start there. Yeah, so uh, before Samerson, Good Times and the Jeffersons, Sanford Son being the start of that in 1972. Before that, television, uh, especially in the late 60s, was kind of just starting to get its way back into being largely diverse. I would say, you know, as far as Black folks on TV, the kind of first images of them in a popularized way were in the sitcoms Beulah and Amos and Andy. Beulah specifically is one Black woman who worked, you know, as a domestic for a white family. Amos and Andy is about two to three individuals and their families living in Harlem and kind of all the get-rich-quick schemes and comedy that comes with that, both based off of radio programs. And that was uh, 1951 and, and 1953. Between those years, both those shows were canceled, not due to lack of, you know, audience share, but due to, like, you know, a lot of folks protesting, like the NAACP, for instance, protesting those images as they felt they were, you know, too controversial or stereotypical. From then on, Black folks specifically existed in TV in the more kind of minor or like supporting character roles until like the late 60s, where there were a lot of outrage regarding political issues, social justice. And there was a survey called the Kerner Commission Report, and it surveyed people across the U.S. asking them kind of um, what is it they need to feel like they're a part of this union. A lot of folks had part of their issues were the way that they are presented in the media or lack thereof. So with that, you saw in 1968, a lot of local TV programming through like what you may see it now is like PBS. Then it was called National Education Television, where you saw a lot of black television shows start to rise. Public affairs shows, ones that were about black politics, culture, arts, etc. But problem was mainstream images of blackness, right? The ones that make money, the ones that we see in primetime TV. So those started to come about with a show, Julia, for instance, was the first kind of show of that gamut with a black artist as the star of the show. And but mostly she lives in the kind of larger white environment still. So although we have a black lead now for the first time in over 15 years, uh, we're still missing a show that kind of encapsulates a black community and culture. Whereas, you know, 
our white counterpart shows have been doing that for for decades. Then after you know '68, seeing the success of like and blackness being able to be sold to individuals, Norman Lear and Bud Yorkin, who created the show All in the Family, about kind of this idea of liberalism and conservatism and like um, structure of politics, like this kind of um, way we can go in the home and talk about you know politics from perspective of an older generation and a younger one from a very liberal mindset. That show ended up becoming wildly popular, number one rated show for about six years straight. But it gave those two the power to kind of do anything on TV they wanted. So with that, they actually came together and created a show, realized there's a, a market space that obviously blackness sells. We see it in, in Julia, but there's a whole black popular culture, a whole black co- culture and community that doesn't see themselves. So they're able to transition and create a show that encapsulates an entire black community in Watts, or black and brown community. And that's how Sanford and Son came about. And from there, it gave them the ability to like, all right, how else can we kind of further ideas about black families and black communities? Hence, good times, right? As a struggling family trying to make it in Chicago. And from there, you know, it's about how, how can we celebrate and acknowledge black ascension? So that's where, you know, the Jeffersons came to play. That's so interesting. The fact that there were a couple TV shows with black leads, Mm -hmm. but they didn't present black people the way we wanted to be seen. And then there was just no black TV. And then there were like the MLK riots and all of this upset from black people. And it was like, well, maybe TV will be the solution. And that's, that's how we got Sanford and Son. Yeah. And to the point you were mentioning about Amos and Andy and Beulah in the early 50s, yeah, a lot of folks had issue with with the imagery, but a lot of folks, honestly, they just appreciated the fact that we were seen on TV, period, right? So that's another thing, too, is, like, some folks have issue with, like, either be seen on TV uh, in this light or don't be on seen on TV at all, right? It was kind of balancing act of what was more important to folks. And in this moment of TV, most of the writers, 98% of them are white, so they're already coming approaching it with their imagination of what blackness is as well. So to some folks, you know, they felt Amos and Andy was extremely funny and comedic show, did a lot for the community because actually it showed black doctors, black lawyers as side characters or background characters, but folks had issue with the main characters and how they presented themselves. Let's get into Sanford and Son. Every time I watch, I know in the credits, they're always like based off Steptoe and Son, which I had never like investigated what that is. Sanford and Son is an adaptation of a British TV show. I guess I should have more context for the audience. It's a show about a father and son who own a junkyard. They're like scraping by and they're always trying to find ways to not be doing that, to get a little extra money. I want to start with Red Fox, the actor who plays the main character on Sanford and Son, did not come into being in sitcoms the way that most white actors do, which is super interesting. Let's start there. Yeah, based off Step Hill and Son, a British show, they were able to acquire rights to be able to readapt the show and with an American audience. And so Red Fox, at this point, he's known as primarily to just the black community, but he's known as the, you know, the king of party records. He's known as the person that one of the huge influences in black stand-up comedy. And he actually was seen in um, a film called Cotton Comes to Harlem, playing a junk man, actually. It's a, you know, kind of on the precipice of black exploitation films. And they realized that, okay, this can be someone who can, assume the role as someone running a junkyard because that's what he's doing in the film. But they also went to some of his comedy shows and realized that he knows how to carry an audience. He's been doing it at this point. I think he has comedy records 
as early as the 50s. So he's been doing it over 20 years now, and he had his own record recording studio. So finding this individual from, you know, a Black film and coming from the histories of Black stand-up, where in a lot of times they can only perform in front of Black audiences, bringing that person to prime time to create a universal audience, you know, you could read that as, as white, largely, was something different. He doesn't come from a space where he had to read lines and perform for television and perform in front of the cameras. He is coming from stand-up space where his bodily performance, his improvisation, all that comes to play. And actually, we see that being a huge part of why the character was so beloved is his natural ability to lean into some of the jokes that are written for him, for him to go off script oftentimes, too. That's how he's going to gain a lot of power in the show. And that's how he gained a lot of influence in trying to really make the show his own. So I think that when you're acknowledging the show, you can't talk about his history without talking about what Red Fox did. So yeah, he came from a, you know, a, an industry where it was like, you know, making very little money and, but you enjoy the, the lifestyle of performance and presenting yourself in this way. When it came to primetime TV, it completely changed his life because it's, it's a consistent check. Right. But even more so, it was his way of kind of reinvesting into and having a much larger audience space that isn't just primarily black. And I think that was a struggle for a lot of these black artists in this time, always having a black audience and kind of not having to explain certain things and certain jokes. But when they became come to prime time, they're gaining a whole new audience base and they have to kind of be able to cater to a wider audience that may not understand what they're coming through. So, so much of it was about how they can use their performances to uh, garner a stronger audience. One of the things you talk about in the book with Red Fox is he came from a comedy background. He brought a lot of the people that he knew from that background into the show with him. There's a part in the book where you talk about like he would just kind of show up on set with one of his comedic friends and just ask, hey, can they get a part in the show today? Yeah, and they would pay him like he'd pay him like five hundred dollars just to be on a show for say a couple lines or stand in the background. That was his way that he like continued to reinvest back into the community that made him. Ooh, and I want to get more into that, but I also want to talk about the actual show because there's this really interesting part where you compare Fred Sanford as like the main patriarch of the family versus Archie Bunker from All in the Family as like the main patriarch. Yeah, I made that comparison largely because in writing this book, you have to kind of go back and read like trade journals and newspaper articles were saying about the shows and like so one way they try to promote it is saying they do they did this for the jeffersons too in sherman hemsley's character george jefferson they try to say like the, the black archie bunker right or someone who's as bigoted as archie bunker right and i don't agree with that so like part of me making this comparison is that let me show you these two characters and how they differ what's different between them obviously is their you know their, li- their living situation one being kind of a working class, but owning a home and nothing in on the family is really ever about them struggling economically. It's about kind of political differences, ideologies, et cetera. But in San Francisco, the crux of the show is largely them trying to run this business and constantly with the threat of eviction, not being able to afford their rent, get rich quick schemes. So with these two individuals who have certain views of the world, one being from a privileged white perspective and one being from a poor black man trying to make it, essentially these aren't the same at all. So part of me presenting those two because they're the most popular characters on ABC and on CBS. So these are on two different networks, but Tandem owns both the shows. And the shows actually made the same, have the same type of audience. They, uh, they're both one and two in the Nielsen ratings for like three years straight. 
All the Family was one, Sam Shannon was two, but also their pay was very different. So that's another thing about when you look at racial formations and how the network was, excuse me, how the industry of TV wasn't built for black people. And that's part of why Red Fox walked off the show is because he said that he wanted to make as much as, if not like a dollar more than what Carol O'Connor from All in the Family made because they're bringing the same audiences on two different networks. So why is my pay so much different than his, right? So I use that comparison to realize that, to show that it's a false comparison because racially the shows fare very differently in like what shows get the most attention, who gets paid what, even though the show is doing the same work on its network than All in the Family was doing on his. So really it was about race, largely changed the perspective of these shows. So to compare them as two like lovable bigots is what they kind of call both of these individuals doesn't quite fare well when you're looking at them largely surrounding like not just what's happening in the show, but as an industry and the business as well. I want to talk about Red Fox walking off this show. Definitely. I watch season two a lot of times and I'm always like, why is he just like gone for six episodes? And you talk about in the book, there's actually like, as it was happening, there was a lot of speculation about why he actually walked off. There was the pay discrepancy was the biggest thing, right? And what started actually was that with the first idea was that he told folks, because he kind of wanted to hide in a way the idea that it was a pay discrepancy because he didn't want to seem like he was selfish or anything or had just hounding folks for money, although it was deserved, right? So, and I think that also was a matter of just his race and his identity and like knowing that he's kind of not the powerful one in this space you have to kind of fail how you're going to ask for something more. So what he said at first at NBC studio, he had, he has his own rehearsal room. It didn't have a window. So he said part of his issues was he wanted a window in his rehearsal room. Then he said part of his issues was like part of him not coming up to certain sets or table reads was because he was sick and injured, which again, I can't, no one can really deny or say whether that's true or not, but he went on some shows, did some advertising and did some like, you know, press runs while he walked away from the show. And it made, became clear that although those, those other things may be true as well, he also wanted a market share in the show that was equivalent to what someone who has the number one show on a network deserves. And so what they did was, you know, at the end of the, that season, they had uh, Whitman Mayo, who, who played his friend Grady on the show, kind of assume Fred's role and the impetus is that Fred, like, you know, went home to St. Louis to visit his family. But it's a string of five episodes going from in the second to the into the third season that we don't see Red Fox at all. And largely in it, as industry wide, he's doing these press runs. He's still doing stand up as well. Cause by the way, he's still during this entire show, he would stop taping on Friday evening. He would fly to Vegas, do stand up throughout the weekend, come back on Monday and do Sanford and Sun throughout the week. So he stayed doing stand up. So when it came to the show and him arguing this, the producers relented. They didn't want to give him the, what he was asking for. But then they realized, although there were some favorable reviews for Grady as the character, Red Fox made the show. And it was his show. And so they realized that the longer we wait this out, we're going to lose audiences and lose mar- a certain market share. So we're going to bring him back. So what they did was they brought him back. They fired the current, at that point, the current um, person who was the showrunner. They said they let Red Fox get what he had, gave what he had asked for, as well as in his contract that he brought up, he said he wanted to be a part of the writing team or at least a consultant on what's written and to give his kind of final say on it. Because if he wanted to perform it, he wanted to have a say on it. And as I mentioned, a great majority of the writing room was white. 
except for one black man that he helped get hired because of how he felt that there was no black influence in what's being written. So this way he was able to walk out the show and because of them realizing how important him having the agency of being the namesake of the show, they had to ask him for him back. And so he was able to use his power in that way. It doesn't fare well from other, for other folks in other shows when they try to do that, but Red Fox being that lead character in the show and being this driving force, they had to acquiesce to his demands. And we saw a successful way in which kind of a black person was able to beat the system in this moment. It's so cool that they did have to bend to what he wanted. And you talk about how like the first season, it was an adaptation of that British show. The first season was almost exclusively just like take the exact script from the original show and only tweak it a little bit. And that was one of the big things that like Red Fox had an issue with is he's like, this is supposed to be a black show. Why are you just like putting a little bit of seasoning on some on a white show? This should be written as a black show, which is why even I think even before he went off, like you said, they had the one black writer. And then going forward, they brought in more black writers and the show starts to feel a little different. Yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah, part of his issues with the first season is that, um, and folks wrote in about this too. Like when I read some fan letters that talked about this, they're like, you know, love seeing red, but you know, something about it doesn't just, I don't feel it just yet. Right. And, you know, when it comes to again, red's brand new to television, things you aren't used to being written for him coming from stand up, he really goes to talk to the producer and said, look, black people wouldn't say this. I mean, he just, he used another word, but we're going to say black people wouldn't say this. And so with that being the case, they kind of, you know, pushed off to the side, but he kept saying it. Like, this is an issue. This is probably how to fix this. And they end up hiring a staff writer who's like, I believe through my research, the first black staff writer of, of any show on TV. His name's Alunga Adele. And he ended up being the person who's at the table all the time. So oftentimes shows will bring in a guest writer to, or, you know, on contract to write one or two episodes. This person was on the, on the writing room table for the, the duration. What that means was no matter what, although he was still outnumbered, there was a black presence there that could talk about like black jargon, how certain comedies, you know, it will land given if, if it has a certain black take to it. But also doing this and like having this outcry, Red Fox was able to get folks like Paul Mooney and Richard Pryor to come on the show and, and guest write as well, which is the same way where we look at how LaWanda Page came as on Esther is because he got her hired because he went to middle school with her. He knew that she was a, a comedian, kind of down on her luck, working at bars throughout Los Angeles. He brought her to the show. She couldn't read lines and they were going to fire her. He said, if you fire her, you get rid of me too. So he like, again, put on for people he knows. And now the show can't even be imagined without her because there was no black woman on the show who was consistent. So not having that person not having someone who can challenge Red Fox comedically and like a natural challenge because she's a comedian as well, made the show a bit bland. The main character should always be challenged. And in this way, he was able to get agency and hire her as a, as a, as a co-star as well as writers. And you saw the script started to change, really kind of have these moments of black power, these moments of discussions of like black identity, um, financial ruin, efforts of like poking at histories of black comedy, things that simply couldn't exist as replications of season one, which is all just rewrites of Steptoe and Son, but with black people in it. Let's talk about LaWanda Page. She's iconic. And like you said, like it's a it's a very masculine show. It's about a father and son. But then you have Aunt Esther, who does 
stand up and like blow for blow. It's so good. No, yeah, the one the page is great because again, yeah, she offered that balance and she reflects to a lot of black popular culture as far as like the holy roller, that you know, extreme black Christian woman, right? Dealing with like the sins of Red Fox's kind of, you know, lazy character or like heathenist character. Ed, you talk about I I definitely didn't know this. She also was huge at stand-up. They called her like the queen of comedy. Yeah, black folks called her the queen of comedy because she, well, she first used to do like burlesque dancing. She used to do uh, fire dancing. Um, she did serpent dancing. Like she was doing kind of everything. She loved being in the spotlight performance. And then she moved to Los Angeles, worked as a kind of a, a dancer and performer and singer at a local bars and clubs. Met up with two individuals named Skillet and Leroy. And actually they, they are actually a lot of side characters off on, the, on Sanford Sun as well. And they ended up doing stand-up acts together. You know, she was the woman who was as like the kind of uh, added to like the, these two kind of raunchy men. She was a woman that can like show that, oh, I can be raunchy too. So she was that, in effort, she was the individual who was the woman who was claiming, black woman specifically, who's claiming her sexuality in a way that we don't see on TV. Because think about it, at this moment, the black women on TV are, you know, Diane Carroll is Julia. That's the image of what black women are and like, which is an image, but it's not fluidity of what black women look like or perform like or act like. So Luanda Page was hugely important to the realization of that black women aren't a monolith. We can be, look different ways. And I think that her role as both comedian and actress are hugely important to showing the fluidity of what black women can be, how they can look. And I think it is an important thing to look at. Luanda Page is so often overlooked, but I, but I, with this book, my plan was to bring her back to the forefront because she represented so much on the underground scene to, to just black audiences and to the mainstream when it came to Sanford and Son. Okay. There's one more thing I want to talk about with Sanford and Son because I mean, it's even in the title of your book, you're talking about hustle economics when it comes to this. So I want to just one more thing about the actual show itself. You talk about Fred Sanford's character as like the traditional trickster character. Yeah, uh, the trickster character comes from like a West African tradition of stories about like, you know, Br'er Rabbit and Nancy the Spider, but they're really all about, from West African stories to, to enslaved narratives, is about how those who are powerless beat those who have power, right? So, or how they kind of can scheme against those. So in the case of Blackness and histories of Black comedy, the trickster narrative is, is a huge part of that. So trickster comes in in Sanford and Son and Red Fox's character in the ways that the one with power is white hegemony, whiteness, the rich, right? And even if they're not physically present, it's a power that exists living in America. So in Sanford and Son, Red Fox, with his comedy, uses the trickster narrative oftentimes to kind of, you know, get away with things. He uses it as a, as a way to kind of beat the man, as they call it, right? So part of his trickster narrative is hustling. If he doesn't have money for something, he'll find a way to get it. He'll do, a, you know, host a poker game to get some quick cash. He'll borrow. He mentions how, like, he had a steal when he was younger, which Red Fox in real life had a lot of stints with the law and was in jail a lot because he did steal oftentimes just to eat. You know, he stole apples on the street corner. He sold his own blood. All these things just to make ends meet. He's hustle. Right? Hustle has a negative connotation of, like, you know, unlawful things, which, yeah, they may be unlawful, but largely... When it comes to your survival, if you need to steal a piece of bread and you're starving, you're not going to worry about what the law says about it. You're trying to survive. So in essence, like so many episodes throughout the, sh throughout the show, 
are about you know them on the threat of addiction. One episode I go in deeply about is like I think episode uh, maybe I think six of second season called the Great Sanford Siege, where really they're behind their bills. You know, again they're they're, they're a pretty fledgling business. Uh, a layaway company comes to, to collect their you know all their all their appliances that are past due, and the cops come, the sheriffs come, and and the guy who's, who's like doing the uh, repossession, a white man. And then Red Fox is able to kind of ploy and act like the white man pushed him down the stairs. As a, and he said he threatens him with like to sue him for bodily harm, you know. And instead, the man says, "Oh, take the time you need. We'll, I'll even write the check for you and give you an extension on your um, appliances. Just don't sue me, right?" And the guy leaves, and they, they kind of they both laugh and rejoice about Fred's performance. That in a way is a hustle. You're hustling because you know you're about to get threatened eviction, and you know. It's your livelihood. What are you going to do? Just let it happen. If you don't have the money for it, how can we, you know, figure this out? And he becomes a trickster by literally tricking the individual, saying, "You tricked me. I fell down the stairs. Give me this money, or like do something about it, or I'll sue you." So really, it's like people read that as like a, "Oh, he's just, you know, um, salacious, evil, or a liar," right? But I read it somewhat differently. It's just like you're hustling to survive in an economic space that's difficult for you or isn't built for you. So part of that hustle is sometimes you have to scheme, you have to lie, you have to cheat. And largely, it largely doesn't, doesn't hurt the other person, but it is a kind of subtle way that folks got to practice different strategies to survive, stay alive, and to keep on going. Because at the end of the day, he's going to face another threat of addiction in a later episode, right? So it's about how in these episodic moments, how do these characters continue to live? Largely, it has to do with hustling. A lot of it has to do with, you know, um, cheating the system a bit through informal networks because the formal networks aren't accessible to them because of blackness. Like when it comes to welfare, I'll mention good times real quick. They think, I think they said they made $100 more in a particular year so they couldn't qualify for welfare. So instead, they got money through uh, the father doing a kind of a, a pool hall hustle and got the money for rent that way. So when you try to attach yourself to these to these formal uh, things that aren't illegal, you're oftentimes barred from them. So what else can you do if you have a family trying to survive? You have to sometimes take things in your own hands. And that's how the hustle to survive in an economic uh, environment, um, that's how the kind of term, term came about, is that these shows show, show a lot of ideas that people say it's just shows about buffoonery or poor individuals. But no, I think they show survival and that hustle is a part of that survival, whether or not it may be deemed legal. With the context of, like, there was a decade of no Black television, that would really speak to Black viewers. You mentioned Good Times, so let's let's pivot. Good Times comes in, and it's, it's the first Black nuclear family, which is super important. And it was always considered to be Esther Roll's show from conception. Absolutely. Other than Sanford and Son, every other show on Tandem Productions was produced, was like a spinoff of one another. So On the Family produced the show Maud, and Maud is the sister of Archie Bunker's wife. So uh, Maud Finley, she has her own show played by B. Arthur. And so on Maud, Maud has a domestic or like a housekeeper played by Esther Roll. Her name is Florida Evans in the show, right? Esther Roll is such a huge part of the show. Maud's about you know, white liberal woman, like white liberal guilt oftentimes. And Esther Roll's character was meant to kind of uh, be the the person that's able to, in a joking way, hold Maude accountable to her whiteness 
and to her white liberal sensibilities as like a in this moment of like you know white women's liberation um, that didn't really include black women. So Esther Roll's character Florida was meant to be that kind of foil to Maude that held her accountable, and Maude was always trying to express her white guilt to her in certain ways, and then you know Florida made jokes of it. Florida as a character was so popular that Norman Lear decided to make her own show and to like let her be the star of the show. And at this moment, no one had talked about it, a full a, a nuclear family before. And traditions of American TV, you see like Leave it to Beaver, Father Knows Best, all these things. There's so many white shows that with having a mother, father, and kids is normalized. But not having that in a black family, it doesn't exist in black families on TV. So taking that leap, normally it produces good times with Esther Roll as the Alma Helm. However, their idea in the first place was never to have a, black, have a father figure. But Esther Roll, knowing that this show, again, another moment of like black folks having agency, this, she knew this show was meant for her. So she used that her power to say, I don't want to do this show unless I have a father or, or, or a mate or a husband in the show because I want this show to be the first of its kind that shows that because it's a very redeeming thing that I think our community needs to see. So she was able to only ask for that because the show was meant for her. Say that character didn't exist on Mod, and this idea came to create this show and they would have found her just off Broadway. They would, she would have told them that, and they probably would have been like, okay, let's find somebody else. But she already had an established fanfare from Mod, so you couldn't simply just get rid of her, her as the character. So that made them, you know, seek out, you know, John Amos to be the father in this show as well. And so, like, technically, John Amos played her husband on Mod. He's on a couple episodes, but when it came to a show that's about them and their own family, they're like, no, we can't do that. It's not realistic. Because it hadn't been done yet. Hence why we had the first kind of black nuclear family, not until, you know, 1974 on TV with Good Times. Oh, you said so many things I want to dive a little deeper into. There's the way that Florida's character on Maud counters this like trope of like a very kind of submissive vision of what a domestic worker looks like because she doesn't take it from Maud. It's very interesting. And... Good Times is set specifically in the projects of Chicago in Cabrini Green, which is pretty huge because that was pretty notorious. And this show was a window into all of these assumptions about it being like full of like crime and poverty. But it was about a proud black family that is, as the book is called, scratching and surviving. Yeah. Cabrini Green is like, I think I mentioned in the book too, it is a space that's so contentious to a lot of folks because you see in a lot of places where that talk about history of what, what Chicago looks like. And Cabrini Green is like the setting for, like, you think of like later films like Candyman, for instance, right? It is like this space where they have enclosed black folks, poor black folks usually into the space. And then you think about the crime that exists there, the dilapidation, like the lack of a government assistance. So Cabrini Green had this, you know, this era about it. And even the film Cooley High, which is, created by the same creator of Good Times. Cooley High was also a, a film in which was based at Cabrini Green. this like area kind of north side Chicago. And what was so important about Cabrini Green was the fact that we had not seen the projects as a space of where black people exist in real life on TV. And the actors of the show, there's John Amos, who played the father, and uh, Esther Roll, they actually went to Chicago, went to Cabrini Green, and went to Atlanta. And, like they studied 
people living in the projects to understand how they can be in those roles as people who live in the projects on TV. For them, it was a matter of respect. You know, we respect this as a living situation for many Black folks across America. Let's respect it by talking to them, asking them how what it's like to live there, what are their struggles, et cetera. And I think that that was a huge part to why they were so integral to the shows because they cared to invest in the livelihood of these individuals. And uh, yeah, Cabrini Green was a place that, you know, until it was torn down some years ago, it was this barometer of like governance subsidized housing where black folks were kind of just put in and then told like, all right, good luck without the government assistance or help anymore. I think having the show base there says a lot about, you know, how important these families are because these are the real families in America that we never talk about, but they exist. Something you talk about a lot with like the show's content is there's tension between having it just be like purely sitcom and having it actually tackle like real social issues. That was a big like behind the scenes fight between the actors and writers and like the white execs on the show. Yeah, I think all of these shows have that kind of issue of them. Like, are, are they pure comedy? Meaning like there's no political or social bent to it. Nothing I'm talking about race relations, et cetera. Or are they, you know, political comedies or are they, or are they, you know, community-based ones. And I think that all these shows can be all of those things. But the problem largely was when, like Good Times, for instance, when the pure comedy outweighed the power and the progressive power that the show can do. So when it came to a point that the show started being written in the efforts of like just for cheap laughs and like kind of gags versus its structure that was created and talking about, you know, black joblessness, you know, bullying, uh, religion, like all these things about black culture that were kind of no longer written about in the show, the show started to lose audiences and it started to like lose interest. I think having certain episodes is fine, but when that became the majority, this idea of pure comedy or pure sitcom, that took away from the very political and progressive bent that the show was actually meant to do. They all kind of come from a very culturally specific ideology of like blackness at its core and its center. And when you kind of divert from that to talk about pure comedy, it loses a lot of the reason why folks watch it. And Esther all left season five. There's she's not on there. Yep, she left season five, came back season six because she wanted to, you know, end the show off right. But yeah, part of these reasons is why John Amos, as the father, started missing table reads, started arguing his contracts, got some of his contract deals in place, like writing a certain episode or like being consulted on some scripts. But at the end of the season, they felt that he was just too much of a nuisance. And again. To them, they never wanted him in the first place, as I mentioned with the history of like having black fathers. So for them, it was easy to get rid of him. They called him a destructive factor and told him that like, you know, yes, we'll have another season, but you won't be joining us. And they felt that he was replaceable or like we can, we can write him out because the character JJ has elevated so much in our construction of pure sitcom episodes. We don't need that stern father anymore because the pure sitcom episodes, they sell. Pure comedy sells because... There's an audience base of mainstream audiences, which could mean white usually, that like the pure sitcom. So not having you in that, this is in the mind of the producers, not having you in the show is fine by us. So that's the way with someone like where they risked their job and it didn't work out. And the way they worked out for Red Fox, because he's a star, but John Amos isn't the star. Essa Roll was. So again, that same kind of threatening of walking out and taking political action and defiance in this case, didn't work in the favor for John Amos. He always kind of wanted to be in a production role in TV. 
Yeah, he ended up he used his contract to really much like create his own production company. Like that's how it really was for him. But like you said, he was not the star of the show, so they were like, "Well, bye." And then he's not even the only. Ooh, you tell the other really sad story about Eric Monty. Eric Monty, yeah, he's the the creator of the show, who wrote the show, developed the idea, as well as a writer of the film Cooley High. Just the same set around a year after Good Times released, so he came up with this idea, a lot of based off his own life, because you can see the character of JJ in him kind of similarities there. But yeah, he was largely written out of the show. And I think a lot of black folks in this moment who didn't work in Hollywood didn't know how contracts were read, pushed for the money rather than like equity and stake and percentages. And again, because those things are learned and taught about. And largely to folks who, who are black coming from nothing, we never learn those things, right? So these folks often, we see it in music today happening all the time too. Folks go for the immediate money rather than realizing the long-term effects of just taking the money now, right? So they were able to kind of, effectively kind of write him out of the writer's room and then write him out of the show. And what he did was he decided to sue them and he sued uh, NBC as well as Tannen Productions. And he sued them, won some money. I think, I think the number may be skewed, but I believe it was like a million dollars, which is absolutely nothing compared to what they made on these shows. He got his money and maybe a small, almost insignificant share of the show. And that was it. The way the power that Tandem had in Hollywood, they were able to effectively blacklist him from being on TV anymore. So with that blacklisting, you know, he ran through his money, wasn't able to get any more jobs, had a very, very difficult life with like drugs and alcohol and all these things happened to him. But again, he was effectively kind of blacklisted from Hollywood because they had that much control over everything. Because again, they have like at this point about six shows that are all in top 10. So they can risk losing a show and losing certain people. And for them they felt like he was kind of just pushing the show back for what it can be. But again, even though he created the show, he didn't have control of it. And what that control means is that executive producer like Norman Lear can look at the scripts, approve what he wants to approve and take the show's direction and vision away from what the original intent was. Monty didn't like that, sued them. And like, you know, it makes you think of Colin Kaepernick in the NFL. Like once you sue these huge entities, they effectively work to kind of block you out of them for good. I added that story because, yeah, it's, it's a difficult one and hurtful, but like it's the reality of how much power these media folks had and how important these black storytellers were to these stories being even relevant or bring, coming onto, the, uh, onto television. But the power structures work a certain way in the TV industry that largely doesn't have us in mind. And in both these shows, Sanford is really at the beginning and good times towards the end you could see the contrast of what it's like when black people are fighting really hard and being listened to versus when it's mostly just white people running the show oh man i figured we probably were not gonna have time for the jeffersons just because there's so much to say for the side of good times but i guess I th- we should brush past it a little bit because it is it is a big deal it is like the first time we see a black middle class family it had interracial marriage only a few years after that was even like federally legal to do. But it was also kind of the end of the era because it was an interracial cast. It wasn't just like a purely black sitcom the way the other two were. Exactly. Yeah. It was centered on a black family. And again, another spinoff. The Jeffersons is a spinoff from own family as well. Oh, and Eric Monty claims to have created the character of George Jefferson. Exactly. So that's another another part of his lawsuit against them, right? But oftentimes when it comes to things aren't written down or there's no trail of breadcrumbs, there's like, all right, we can't prove it. And that's kind of how they're able to get away with that. 
now let's show blackness in this new light. You know, what can happen when you put a black person in a white space, right? Which means rich, right? In this case, this fish out of water narrative of like how this black man assumes this nouveau riche lifestyle. So really it's about his hustle is trying to look the part all the time, like how to, how to live like a rich person. He's hustling every day and, and creating his imagery around what he believes rich people how they act, how they perform, how they how they uh, talk, what they eat, all these things. But it was extremely important to see this because, again, it made it clear that blackness can exist in three different shows in many different ways, right? So I love it, the fact that, like, with all these three shows on at the same time, you're able to consume blackness and black identity in various ways. And the show has talked about, you know, a black family's financial ascension and how, like, the mother, you know, Louise, played by Isabel Sanford, how she doesn't really accept or like this kind of changing of, of our personality and our identity because we have money now and how George Jefferson fully leans into it and wants to push everything that seems poor in the past. So I think this dichotomy of what it means now to be rich or like, are we still black? And still we aren't being accepted by the rich people still because we are black, right? All those things add to how dynamic the show was and conversation and how it was so much of a deeper conversation and nuance there. And when I talk about in the book, I talk about season one of that show because tandem as a, as a company kind of dissolved after that. In the season one, so much of it is about a lot of the hate mail that they got with the show because it's the first interracial couple on TV. A lot of the hate mail, like George Jefferson's character who like made a lot of jokes about whiteness, calling him honky, calling them zebras, all these things, right? So after that season, the show becomes much more like community coalescing together, a little less tension but the show ended up lasting 10 seasons and it was a culmination of these longer black narratives that tandem had started with, with Sanford and son to show this, this idea of blackness can evolve and look many different ways. This era of television really led into like the golden era of black television. When we really had shows that were much more black controlled because of this struggle. And you talk about that. A lot of these actors don't, they don't get the credit for it. And there's that picture in your book of LaWanda Page and Red Fox on the Walk of Fame. Like they never got an official on the Walk of Fame, but they did it themselves. Yeah, they had to firmly plant themselves in their own Walk of Fame because they didn't get the recognition that it was deserved to them. And largely you don't see these folks. I mean, you see them in some, some guest roles in, like the, in the 90s, but that's because the 90s, the folks that grew up with these individuals, they bring them back. You know, well, you see LaWanda Page in like the film CB4, the film Friday. You see her on the show Martin as well, too. Like, because that is their way of like, you know, honoring the comedians that came before them. But like, largely, yeah, you kind of see their, the height of their popularity ends in the 70s. But it takes the 90s where folks, black folks specifically, have production power and creation power to bring folks back to the forefront. So I think, yeah, it took other black folks in the realms of leadership to bring these seventies actors and stars back to relevancy, cultural relevancy. But uh, yeah, I hope this book helps to bring them back to it as well. And um, helps us realize that when we look at the histories of, of black TV, you can't skip over this moment and what these actors did. And the struggle isn't necessarily over. Black people on primetime TV still are constrained in different ways, but you talk about it in the book. There are a lot more platforms for black TV production that you know aren't traditional TV, which does open up avenues for more freedom going forward. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 
Great talking to you. I'm going to mention Black History Month again because Black History Month is a great reason to bring up We the Black People to people you know and to follow We the Black People on Facebook and Instagram. It's at We the Black People Pod. Thanks so much for listening. All power to all people, y'all. <laughs>